Strange Stories UK here again, Series 3, Episode 30. Uh, Let's call this one um, The Woman in Brown. Or what about Edward Osborne of the Society for Psychical Research investigates The Woman in Brown? Anyhow, this podcast is about a story from the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research about events which happened in 1948 in a busy shopping street in London. The exact location was kept a secret. The story reflects the state of the UK at that time, so I would like to spend a little time just to give a snapshot of what the UK was like in 1948, just three years since World War II. They say that the past is a different country, And the UK and London of 1948 certainly feels like a totally different place compared to today. So I wanted to give the story some context by explaining the state of the UK 70 odd years ago. In world affairs, Israel as a country came into existence. Gandhi was assassinated. The Cold War was dominated, uh, dominating the news. The Berlin Airlift began in order to prevent a clash between East and West. And those two tough guys, Stalin and Truman. On the home front, imagine the UK with no supermarkets, no washing machines, no motorways, no high-rise buildings, no frozen food. There would be a corner shop and a public house on every street. Not many families had a car, and you could park wherever you wanted, for free. Abortion, homosexuality and suicide are all illegal. Capital punishment is legal. Men wore suits and hats. Women wore dresses and hats. There was no leisure wear. There were no teenagers. Most children left school at 14 and started work. They were like younger versions of their parents. Food and clothing were rationed. You would have to take your ration book when shopping. Items were purchased if there were adequate points on your ration book or coupon book. People had to make do and mend. They queued in shops. There was a thriving black market and the main source of conversation seemed to be about food, clothing and coupons, ration books. Families ate together. They had to set mealtimes. People were thinner. It was fashionable to smoke. The UK was a land of domestic hobbies and domestic pets. The most popular hobbies were knitting and needlework for women and gardening for men. Popular pastimes would be car or train spotting, stamp collecting. Almost anything was collected. Trade cards, beer mats, dolls, thimbles, matchboxes, even milk bottle labels. Fishing in board games and card games. Scale modelling was very popular. Children spent a long time playing uh, with other children outdoors. London was physically shabby and depressing. The buildings were actually black. Particles of coal from all the coal fires that were burning. There were bomb sites dotted everywhere in the towns and cities. Buildings had not been kept well or repaired during the war years. Once stylish restaurants were now drab and short of food. 
Mr Abercrombie, the Minister for Housing, introduced planning permission with his Town and Country Act part of Parliament. The government wanted to build or plan new towns and introduce slum clearance in large cities. But this would take time and people didn't want to wait. They wanted homes at once. Housing was a huge problem. Many homes had no hot water. They had outside toilets. There were plans to build over a million prefabs, prefabricated houses, by 1950, but only a fraction of this was achieved. About 150,000, 15% of the target figure. There was a programme of council house building, but often materials were in short supply. Britain had a huge balance of payments problem, and imports were expensive. Four million British servicemen were being demobbed after the war. Often their job was no longer open to them. Returnees were seldom treated as heroes by a war-weary society. Strangers on marriage. The experience of a stranger returning home on children was often damaging. And divorce was increasingly an option for ordinary people. The Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, and the Ministry of Labour were calling on more women to work. Only 25% of married women worked. Sociological studies of the time found that most women intended only to work until they were married. The object of most working women was to find a job that was clean and tidy before getting married. Britain produced its own coal and steel. It made its own cars. There was a large manufacturing sector. Consumer durables were made in Britain. A Gallup opinion poll suggested that 40%, sorry, 42% of the population of the UK wanted to emigrate. The Ministry of Labour, faced by labour shortages, wanted to attract migrants, especially white European migrants from countries such as Poland, and displaced persons from refugee camps throughout Europe. Its attitude to Caribbean workers was not so positive. There was no government scheme to attract Caribbean workers who started arriving in 1948 as an unintended consequence of the Nationality Act of 1948 which gave right uh, of those living in the colonies to live in the UK. At the same time, the uh, USA was tightening its rules on migration. During May 1948, the former German troop carrier, the Empire Windrush, first stopped at Tilbury with 492 Jamaican men and one stowaway woman. Many of those arriving were former servicemen taking advantage of cheap transport advertised in Jamaican newspapers, hoping to make a better life for themselves. This is often cited as being the beginnings of the modern British multiracial society. 1948 saw an influx of people displaced by the partition of India coming to the UK for a safe refuge. World War II had shaken things up and speeded up many changes that would have evolved at a much slower pace. The Beveridge Report's proposals of a welfare society were coming into effect. Sickness pay and pensions were now available. The NHS came into operation during July 1948. But even that seemed quite different from the NHS we have today. On a recent radio programme celebrating the 17th anniversary, I listened to people's experience of using the NHS back in the 1940s. One woman was recalling that as a child she was sickly and underweight, 
so her NHS doctor prescribed two weeks holiday for her at a holiday camp. So very different from the experiences that uh, we have of the NHS today. So in 1948 it could be said that London would be barely recognisable to anybody living there today. This was still a pre-computer age. 1948 saw the development of the first commercial computer. So there was the need for secretaries, receptionists and support workers such as clerks and typists to do the work that computers do today. The story in this podcast centres on a group of women who worked as clerks and typists in a building on a busy central London street. The story of the woman in brown was published in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research booklet from November and December 1949. The investigator for the society was Edward Osborne. The Society of Psychical Research, well we'll just call them SPR from now on, became aware of the story after being visited by a Miss Margaret Watson regarding happenings which appear to be paranormal taking place in the building occupied by the organisation of which she was at that time a manager. She thought that the society might be interested in to investigate the phenomena. The office where Miss Watson worked occupied the whole of a building in a busy central London street. Opposite the building there was a large bomb site, a devastated area. On one side of the building was another bomb site, and on the other side a five-storey block of offices. The building fronted onto a main street. The building had been badly damaged by a flying bomb in 1944, and it was practically rebuilt in 1948. There were three floors of the building connected by a new concrete staircase running from the street level up the side of the building. The street door, which was left open in the daytime, gave direct access to the staircase and the vestibule. The offices on the first floor were separated by a partition, which also separated it from the vestibule. There were doors with glass panels leading from the vestibule to the ground floor offices. The doors were usually closed, but it would be a simple matter for anyone to come in from the street and go straight upstairs without being seen from the ground floor. The rooms on the first and second floor were bright and well lit, except those on the side where they were overshadowed by the large building. There was a basement which was lit only by an artificial light at its entrance. The following account has been compiled from the statements given to Edward Osborne, an investigator for the SPR. He visited the building and spoke with those concerned on six occasions between the 11th and the 23rd of February 1949. He separately interviewed those people involved. Where cross-checking was possible, these statements tallied on all material respects. They are here worked consequentially in order that repetition may be avoided and the story unfolds in chronological sequence. The office staff were all women. The principal people of the story were Miss Watson, who was a manager in charge of the third floor, and the other third floor workers, who were Miss Dixon, uh, 
Miss Benson, Mrs. Jenkins, and uh, the other main person was Mrs. Johnson, who was the overall manager on the first floor. So Mrs. Johnson was in overall charge, and she was based on the department on the ground floor. She told Osborne that a few weeks after the organisation had taken possession of the buildings in August 1948, she saw in the basement a figure which she knew was not of this earth. It was a little old man in a boiler suit, and she saw him on several occasions. She told four other people in her department, and Miss Watson, who was manager on the third floor. Watson asked that no other members of staff should be told in case they were frightened of the story. Mrs Johnson named the figure that she saw in the basement Henry. Osborne checked the story with everyone involved, except an office cleaner who had been employed at that time and had learned of the Johnson sightings of Henry, but she had left before the investigation began. When Osborne interviewed Mix Dixon, she told of one evening in October 1948, the cleaner who had just left remarked to Miss Dixon, who had stayed to let her in after 5pm when the offices closed, that the place was very eerie and she thought that it may be haunted. The cleaner said that in the evenings she and the other cleaner were working alone in the buildings on the second floor and heard the sounds of people walking about on the third floor. She also heard people coming up the stairs, so she claimed. Miss Dixon told Edward Osborne that then she remembered that she herself heard noises several times previously when waiting in her own room for the cleaners to arrive. This was after all the other office staff had left. It had not occurred to her that these may not be due to normal causes. It was Miss Benson who in her meetings with Mr Osborne told of an afternoon in November 1948. Miss Benson was alone in an office with Miss Watson. Miss Watson was sitting at her desk and Miss Benson was sitting opposite her. The telephone rang and Miss Watson answered it. And as she was speaking, Miss Benson became aware that a third person, a woman, was sitting in a chair next to Miss Watson, between her and the window. The figure seemed as real as a living person, and Miss Benson said that it seemed at that moment perfectly natural that she should be there. Then the woman got up and turned towards the window and disappeared. She was described as being above average height and dressed in a brown coat and brown skirt. Miss Benson had difficulty in describing the exact shade of brown, saying that it was not dark brown, yet it was not beige. It seemed to be somewhere between the two colours. Benson thought that the woman was about 30 years old, but she was quite unable to describe the woman's face. Benson did not initially mention that she had experienced or what she'd experienced to Miss Watson or anybody else. The whole thing seemed so real that it didn't seem out of the ordinary at that time to her. Though I find this quite extraordinary, the statement in that having an hallucination being considered an ordinary experience. On the third floor where Benson and Watson worked, 
There was a staircase which led to the corridor along which there was a, a lavatory and a cloakroom. Facing the staircase was the office where Miss Dixon and Miss Benson worked. Past the lavatory and cloakroom was a door leading to Miss Watson's office. There was another office where Miss, Jenkson, Miss Jenkins worked, but it did not lead onto the corridor, but it could be accessed by either of the other two offices. A few days later, Benson said she saw the woman again, and as she explained, or as she explained, it was in exactly the same circumstances. Miss Watson was speaking on the telephone, and Miss Benson was standing opposite her when she saw the woman get up from the chair, turn towards the window, and disappear again. Again, she said nothing. A day or two afterwards, when Benson was having a cup of tea in the department on the ground floor, she heard Mrs Johnson talking about Henry, the ghost in the basement, as she had uh, christened the ghost in the basement, who Benson had not heard of before. And it came to her that she realised that she too had seen a ghost on the third floor, the woman in brown. Miss Benson then described her two experiences to Miss Johnson, this was the first time she had mentioned them to anyone. Benson also talked about the noises which she and the cleaners had heard. Mrs Johnson then described how she had seen a man in a boiler suit in the basement, who she called Henry. When Benson told her of the apparition of the woman in brown, Miss Johnson nicknamed her Henrietta, and this was the name that she would be known as by those in the office. When Miss Dixon learnt about it, she expressed the opinion that it was the ghost of someone that was killed in the building when the bomb fell. Miss Dixon told Miss Benson about the noises which she had heard that had come from the direction of Miss Watson's room and the sound of footsteps and a chair being pushed back from the desk when she thought that the room was empty. Subsequently, Miss Benson and Miss Dixon often heard noises when Miss Watson's room was supposedly empty. Shortly after Miss Benson had told her about her two experiences, Mrs Johnson saw another figure. It was about 5pm when she came out of the cloakroom on the ground floor. Johnson saw a man dressed in a dark brown suit who looked like an office worker. She went straight back to her, her office where one of her four colleagues said, you look like you've just seen a ghost. She said, yes, I have, and described what she'd just seen. Miss Watson told Osborne that she did not attach much importance to Miss jo Mrs Johnson's experiences, as Johnson was rather inclined to tell tall stories. However, Miss Watson paid more attention to Miss Benson's account and was interested to find out whether she herself would see the woman in brown. However, after she had been alone in her room with Miss Benson, after the telephone rang, nothing unusual was experienced by either of them. On Saturday morning, the 4th of December, 1948, the date had been established by reference to the account books, Miss Benson was in Miss Watson's room going over the accounts with her. Miss Watson was seated and Miss Benson was standing on the corner of the desk. The telephone rang. 
Miss Watson had been talking for several minutes when suddenly Miss Benson saw the woman in brown standing between Miss Watson and the window. The woman, too, walked a couple of paces which brought her facing the window. Then she put both hands on the handles of the lower sash as if she was about to open the window. Miss Benson said, Don't open it. Miss Watson did not hear as she was deep in conversation on the telephone. Then Benson, clutching Miss Watson by the shoulder, cried, Did you see her? Didn't you see that she was trying to get out of the window? Miss Watson saw that Benson was greatly agitated and as white as a sheet. The person whom she was speaking to on the telephone, a Mrs Paul, heard the interruption and asked who was trying to get out of the window. After this incident, Miss Benson had the experience of a different kind. She was standing inside Miss Watson's room with her hand on the doorknob when she felt it turn in her hand as she thought someone was going to push the door open. She stepped back quickly into the room but the door did not open. There was no one on the other side of it. Benson thought at that time someone was being playing a joke on her. Miss Watson remembered the incident. Miss Watson told Osborne that a few days later when Miss Benson was in her room with her and the telephone rang, a queer look came over Benson's face and she hurriedly left the room. Miss Benson said afterwards that the woman had been there and Miss Watson had been looking straight at her. She thought at first Miss Watson must have seen her, but then she realised that this was not so and she was so distressed that she had to leave the room. At this stage, Miss Benson began to fear that she may be going out of her mind. Henrietta was so real to her, and so normal in appearance, that she simply could not understand why no one else could see her. During this time, Miss Dixon would come to dislike being on the third floor alone. One evening, she was going down to wait for the cleaners. She was in the general office on the second floor, where only half her lights were on and she was looking for something to read. She was walking towards the door with her back to the window, which looked onto the main road, when suddenly she had the sensation that she'd walked into someone. Miss Dixon was terrified and rushed out the room. The next day, Dixon told Benson that she'd seen and described a tallish woman dressed in brown. Benson concluded that she'd seen Henrietta and was greatly relieved that someone else had seen the apparition. She was convinced that it was the ghost of somebody who had been killed in the building. Miss Benson continued to see Henrietta, always on the third floor of the building. That was the top floor. Once she saw her looking through the glass panel in the upper part of the door between her room and Mrs Jenkins' room, which at that time was empty. Miss Benson had for some time been wondering whether there was something that Henrietta wanted. One evening after five o'clock she saw Henrietta three times. Each time she had gone into Miss Watson's room which was empty with the express object of trying to see her. Each time the lights were off in the room but the light from the passage shone through the door which was left open. The first time Benson was standing by the window behind the desk and after about two minutes or so she saw Henrietta standing by the window at the other end of the room. At this moment, Miss Dixon called. 
out to her, and Benson went back into her own room. Shortly afterwards, Miss Benson again went to Miss Watson's room to see if Henrietta was still there. She stood by Miss Watson's chair, and soon saw Henrietta standing in the same place as before. On another occasion, Miss Benson sat in Miss Watson's chair, and saw Henrietta, this time sitting in the chair opposite the wall, opposite the desk. Miss Dexon again called out to Miss Benson before she could speak to Henrietta, who then disappeared. Miss Benson next saw Henrietta on Friday the 4th of February 1949. She wrote the date in her diary. Miss Watson was out. Miss Benson went into her room to see if Henrietta was there. She wasn't, but when she came back out in the passage, uh, she saw her. Miss Benson said, Who are you? What do you want? Benson said that the woman put her fingers in her ear and cringed against the wall and then vanished. On Wednesday evening, the 23rd of February, Miss Benson was alone in the building, except for Mrs Winter, the cleaner, who was on the floor below. Between 5.45 and 6pm she left the room and was about to start walking towards the cloakroom. Just past the doorway she stood to let somebody pass. She walked on, opening the door of the cloakroom. She went in and shut the door. And this took about seven seconds, according to uh, Edward Osborne testing it. When she suddenly thought, My God, it's that woman Henrietta again. This incident was reported to Osborne not more than half an hour after it occurred. The next two appearances of the women in Brown occurred up to uh, after Miss Watson had left the organisation. They were noted by Miss Benson in her diary a few minutes after they had taken place. At 4.30pm on Thursday the 10th of March, she was going up the last flight of stairs, leading to the landing outside her room, carrying a cup of tea and walking very carefully to avoid spilling it. Suddenly she saw the woman in brown walking up the stairs in front of her. At the top of the stairs, the woman turned to go along the passage, leaving to what was formerly Miss Watson's room. Watson, Watson having now left the company. Miss Benson continued into her own room. The entry in her diary concludes, I came in and sat near the window. Then I heard the door close. I was looking out the window when I realised I'd seen Henrietta again. There was no one else on the top floor at that time. On the evening of Friday the 11th of March 1949, Miss Benson was walking along the passage towards the room that was occupied by Miss Watson's successor, a Mrs Miller, whom she was going to see. Miss Benson's diary reads, Tonight I saw that woman again. I shut myself in the lavatory. I was going into Miss Watson's, name is crossed out and Miller's substituted, Miss Miller's room, to say something to her, and the woman in brown was at the open door. I didn't exclaim out loud, thank God, but she was standing in the doorway. Miss Benson was concerned in case that she would see Henrietta in the presence of Mrs Miller, and she was anxious to avoid any dramatic scene for the new secretary, who had heard about the various experiences in the building and put them down to people's imagination. There was no variation in the description of the apparition given by Miss Benson at various times. She was always described as the woman of being above average height, 
dressed in brown coat and a brown skirt, and Miss Benson saw it at least 13 times. Although the woman seemed like a real person to Benson, well, she thought it was real, she could never describe the face. She did not detect any resemblance to anyone else that she knew. During his investigations, Edward Osborne described Mrs Johnson as a woman in her late 40s. Johnson, Mrs Johnson, had described herself to Osborne as being very psychic, and she described several experiences when she, that she said that she'd seen spirit figures. She'd heard ghostly footfalls, knocking and tappings. This is all before she came to work at the building. Mrs Johnson admitted that she thought that people had been killed in the original building. This occurred to her on the first visit that she made in July 1948, when repairs were still being made before the rest of the staff moved in. Not long after the office had opened, she obtained from a workman the dramatic account of the casualties caused by a flying bomb which fell close by in 1944. These flying bombs were also called doodlebugs, or buzz bombs. Over 9,000 were launched at London, or the London area, than the first hit in June 1944. In total they killed about 6,000 people and injured about 18,000 people in London. Edward Osborne, the SPR investigator, was informed by the company that was in occupation at the time of the bomb blast that the bomb fell in daylight in 1944 and had seriously damaged the building. They had heard nothing about the so-called paranormal activity at the building. The informant told Osborne that no one had been killed in the building, although fragments of clothing and possibly bodies had been blown into the building by the explosion. A man had died in the hospital several months later because of injuries received when the bomb fell. His name was Williams, and he was the father-in-law of the caretaker, and he lived with the caretaker and his wife in the top floor flat where the caretakers lived. Williams had been employed as a messenger and an odd job man, and one of his duties was to attend the furnace in the basement. Williams was between 60 and 70 years of age, and about 5 foot 5 inches in height. He was not known to have worn a boiler suit, but occasionally wore brown overalls. Osborne wondered, could he have been the apparition of the man in the basement seen by Mrs Johnson? Osborne concluded that there were certain similarities in Mrs Johnson's description of the man in the boiler suit and the appearance of the man Williams. It was doubtful, however, whether they were strikingly uh, enough to justify the supposition that William's death and Mr Johnson's experience, Mrs Johnson's experiences were related. Also, it should be remembered that Mrs Johnson had in the past non veridical hallucinations. This means they were not related to any person or event. And the fact that the damage of the building suggested to Johnson that deaths had occurred there before she worked in the building, it seemed to Edward Osborne that Mrs Johnson had an overactive imagination. Regarding the noises heard by the cleaners and Miss Dixon, Edward Osborne assisted by Mr J. Fraser Nicholl, carried out a thorough examination of the building, 
on the 16th of February, shortly after the staff had left. Several of the offices in the adjoining buildings did not close until after 6pm, and the muffled sounds of people walking about could be heard through the wall. They could easily be taken for the sound of footsteps heard overhead by the office staff. The sound of people walking on the pavement outside could also be heard inside, echoing up the concrete stairs. As a result, Osborne thought that the noises heard were natural noises that were misinterpreted by the women. Regarding the man in the brown suit seen by Mrs Johnson, Osborne concluded that this description would probably apply to many people who have at one time or another worked in the building. Also, one cannot exclude the possibility that the figure, which was only seen once, may have been that of a stranger or intruder who had come through the street door and straight upstairs. Regarding the tall woman dressed in the brown seen by Miss Dixon, Osborne seemed to have an explanation. Going over the route taken by Miss Dixon, and in the same conditions of lighting, he found that at the exact point at which, according to the statement she said, she walked into somebody, Osborne found that the mercury vapour street lamps outside threw his shadow onto a steel cabinet on the side of the door, and the shadow grew darker and more clearly outlined as he came nearer the cupboard. And someone alone in the building, which she believed to be haunted, could easily imagine, imagine what Miss Dixon experienced, seemingly bumping into someone. It will be noted that only the details of the apparition given by Miss Dixon were those which had previously been used by Miss Benson in describing Henrietta to her. There is little doubt that Miss Dixon's experience, or more exactly the form which it took, was due to the suggestive nature of or the suggestive effect of the stories which she had previously heard from the cleaner, Mrs Johnson and Miss Benson. When considering the noises from Miss Watson's room, Osborne concluded that as Miss Dixon did not report hearing the noises until Benson had remarked upon them, Osborne thought that they were normal sounds. Thus, this supposed resemblance to those heard by Miss Benson were due to suggestion. It was possible that the noises were hallucinatory, but the sounds were heard frequently, and so they were probably normal noises. Edward Osborne looked into Miss Benson's background, as she was the person that the apparition appeared to. Osborne discovered that Mrs Angela Benson was 27 years of age. She had two sisters and a brother, and she was the youngest in the family. Their mother died in 1939, and the father was still living. Angela Benson lived with her older sister, whose husband had been abroad for several years, and her sister's two small children. Miss Benson was described as an introspective person who did not make friends easily, having a preference for her own company. Benson's chief source of enjoyment being the countryside and listening to music. She showed no outward signs of any physiological disturbance, but Osborne did observe that on becoming more closely acquainted with her, a tendency to react to quite normal situations with a display of emotion or alarm. 
He also learnt that since childhood, she had from time to time walked in her sleep. According to Osborne, this involved dissociation, or disassociation, and this may have had some significance to the apparitions that Benson had claimed to see. Benson had had no previous experience of supposed psychic nature and had never before been subject to hallucinations. According to Miss Benson's evidence, she saw the apparition twice before she heard anything from her colleagues about supposed paranormal experience in the basement of the building and elsewhere. Osborne thought it rather unlikely that no hint had reached her ears, but her colleague's statements to him, although not very precise on the points, did tend to confirm that Benson had seen the woman in brown before being aware of the other rumours. Osborne had asked whether it had occurred to her that anybody might have been killed by the bomb in the building. Benson replied that it had crossed her mind, but she had not thought about it particularly. Osborne said that he had to ask himself certain questions. Miss Benson was the only person who had seen the apparition, yet the experience was very striking for several reasons. It involved an apparition which was realistic, repetitive and consistent in appearance, and limited to a particular locality. It was for Angela Benson an experience without precedent, and she had been convinced that there had been a ghost. There were other interesting features for Osborne to think about. For example, what part, if any, did the ring of the telephone play? Was there any significance in the fact that on six occasions the apparition was seen close to the window? To pursue the investigation on conventional lines seemed unlikely to throw any fresh light on the problem. How would it be possible to prove that the apparition was linked to the building? How would it be possible to discover if any woman, alive or dead, had undergone a grave emotional crisis possibly involving a telephone in the building? In the absence of the description of the figure's face, if this was due to Miss Benson's failure to remember the details, there was one way which she may be uh, brought to recall, uh, and that would have been hypnotism. Osborne had wanted to try hypnotism, even if no further details of the appearance of the apparition was obtained. Something may be learnt from Miss Benson's emotional reactions to the questions put to her, when she was in a hypnotic state. Osborne was fortunate in being able to consult Dr. F.K. Taylor, the psychiatrist at the Maudsley Hospital, who was, uh, who was a Czech who fled the Nazis in 1939. Miss Watson's successor, Mrs. Miller, who had taken up her duties three days after Osborne's last visit to the building, did not approve of the investigation by the SPR and refused to allow any further inquiries to be made there. Osborne was able to keep in close touch with Miss Benson and he did all he could to foster in her an objective interest in the investigation. Osborne reported that when I felt she'd had complete confidence in the investigation I was going to suggest hypnotism. And when I did, she agreed. Osborne said they had no difficulty inducing hypnosis. The method used was progressive relaxation, followed by the suggestion of drowsiness and sleep. 
Miss Benson proved to be a very good subject, readily performing post-hypnotic suggestions and showing total amnesia for everything that had occurred while she was under hypnosis. In Osborne's own words, Before the first hypnotic session, I told her that my objective was to try to obtain a more detailed description of the apparition. On another occasion, she was not told in advance what information I was seeking. Each session was recorded, except on the fifth session, the last session, when the recording machine was out of order. These recordings proved to be invaluable. They ensured a complete accurate records by being able to play over at leisure the recordings and also no significant inflection or shade of emphasis could have been missed on the recordings by replaying them. Owing to the extreme suggestibility of the hypnotic state care would be taken to avoid influencing the answers given by the subject. One of the post-hypnotic suggestions that she was told was that when I give, that's Osborne, gives a certain signal, which was a loud click made by him shutting his cigarette case, she would fall fast asleep. The instant the signal was given to her, her head fell onto her shoulder and she was to all appearances completely unconscious, remaining that way until I woke her up by the method which I always did by clicking the cigarette case again. When reviewing the recordings, a Dr Weston, a research officer of the SPR, commented that great care had been taken in both the introductory remarks and the subsequent questions when under hypnosis. The first hypnotic session was on the 19th of March 1949. The subject was instructed to reenact the scene in which he first saw the apparition. A full transcript is given in the files of the SPR booklet of November-December 1949. Miss Benson, Benson was in a deep trance and speaking very slowly with many pauses. During the first session she explains that it's Saturday morning on the 4th of December 1948. She's going into Miss Watson's room and she puts her books down on the desk. She opens the books and starts discussing them with Miss Watson. The telephone rings and Miss Watson says to Miss Benson, Don't go, as she answers the phone to Mrs Paul. Miss Benson said that she felt she wanted to leave the room. Benson then became aware of Henrietta. She was standing wearing the same brown clothes and she saw from her side her profile. She's got a nice profile, a straight nose, her hair is brown and mid-length and there's a parting on the right side. There are four brown buttons on the coat. She's wearing a blouse and she's got a squarish face. Henrietta is standing quite still and she goes towards the window. She's going to open it. Benson doesn't want her to open the window because it's cold. She might fall out. The woman in brown might jump out. When asked why she may jump out, Benson says, It's because something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong, but it's wrong. When pushed on the point as to what is wrong, Benson slowly and deliberately says, I have no idea what's wrong, 
but she seems to be attracted by the window. Benson says to the woman in brown, in a whisper, Don't open the window. Too cold. And then she's gone. Benson remains standing. Miss Watson is still on the phone. Osborne noted that it was interesting that the physical features of the apparition were the opposite to those of Miss Benson. Miss Benson was short. Miss Benson's hair would have been straight if she hadn't had it waved. Benson's face was rather narrow and her nose is not straight. Another observation which may have some bearing on the case emerged when re-reading the notes. The apparition, whether it's walking, sitting or standing, was in accordance with whatever Miss Benson was doing at that time. It was also discovered that at this time Miss Benson had a horror of heights. This seemed to be reflected in her answers and the emotional tone in which she gave them when reacting, reenacting the scene when the woman in brown walked up to the window. Osborne attempted to discover Miss Benson's mental state at the moment of the perception of the apparition. Again, in Osborne's words, This was an attempt to ascertain if the apparition had some psychological origin of which Miss Benson herself was unaware. There was probably some common factor in her mental condition at the moment that the apparition was seen. It may be possible to reveal this by hypnosis. In her waking state, Miss Benson was unable to recall what was in her mind the moment before she saw the apparition. A word association test was given in the second hypnotic, uh, hypnotic session on the 2nd of April 1949. Miss Benson was told to say the first thing that came into her mind on hearing each word. There was a list of 40 words which had been previously selected. It was hoped that this may serve as a shortcut method of obtaining pointers to matters which may prove fruitfully explored later. Responses that appeared significant were as follows. The stimulus word was dead. The reaction under hypnosis was bomb and blood. And the reaction in a waking state a week later was alive. So that's dead, bomb and blood, alive. The other words were mountain, and the, under hypnosis it was height, and reaction a week later was height. The word window, under hypnosis was height or falling, and a week later it was height. Roof, being the word, under hypnosis was height, a week later height. The word open, under hypnosis, the response was window, and a week later, shut. They repeated the word dead. Under hypnosis, it was Miss Thorpe and blood, and a week later, alive. So four of these answers may have been related to Miss Benson's horror of heights. Her response to under hypnosis to the stimulus word dead proved a clue as her response had been bomb and blood and Miss Thorpe. The second hypnotic session attempted to discover what was in Benson's mind when she saw the apparitions. Benson was asked, You are standing there. Miss Watson is talking on the telephone. 
What was on your mind? Benson said that she was told by Miss Watson of a girl who wrapped herself up in an army blanket and she gassed herself. That's what she was thinking of when Miss Watson was talking on the telephone. Benson was asked what else was on her mind. She answered, How horrible it must have been, truly horrible. Benson was asked, What colour was she when she died? Benson answered, White. Then she was asked if she'd seen the woman in brown while she was having these thoughts, and Benson admitted that she had appeared. Edward Osborne spoke to Miss Watson the following day. He learnt that not long after she heard about Henrietta, Watson had told Miss Benson about some years previously when she had been concerned at the discovery of a body of a girl in the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. She had committed suicide by gassing herself. Watson told the story on hearing that Miss Benson was expressing concern about a bombing incident in which she had been involved, Benson had been involved, with during the war. Watson said her objective was to reassure Miss Benson by describing how she herself felt when faced with a similar situation. When she, Miss Watson, had been troubled by doubts other than whether she had done enough to save the life of a woman who'd gassed herself. Miss Watson said that the dead girl had been dressed in battle dress, blouse and slacks. She said blankets played no part in the tragedy. She'd certainly not mentioned blankets in the description to Miss Benson. Also on the second hypnotic session, Benson was asked what was on her mind the next time she saw the apparition, and she said that she was thinking of brown blankets. Miss Benson said that she was cold. She was thinking of blankets to keep herself warm. During November and December 1948, before the central heating was installed in the offices, all members of staff wrapped themselves up in blankets to keep warm. It was at a, one of these times when they were wrapped in blankets that Miss Watson told Benson about the gas girl. Later it seemed that Benson felt guilty about not returning a blanket to Miss Johnson, who stored the blankets on the ground floor offices. Continuing the second hypnotic session, Miss Benson recalled the time she took her tea up the stairs and was thinking about how you would give someone tea with lots of sugar in it as a stimulant if they were injured and in shock. But if that someone was unconscious, they couldn't drink the tea, and it would be too late. When asked who it would be too late to give the tea to, Benson replied, Miss Thorpe. Asked if Miss Thorpe was the girl who gassed herself, Benson said no. Thorpe was killed by a bomb at Southwood. Osborne thought that the second mention of Miss Thorpe in response to the word dead in the word association test for Miss Benson was now explained. Miss Watson said Benson told her how he she had been involved in a bomb incident during the war when she had been on duty in a civil defence post. Benson had to cycle to a post that had been hit by bombs and they had found a woman who was either unconscious or dead. Benson expressed anxiety that she may have not done all she possibly could to save the woman's life, even, indeed, if she had been alive. This incident had taken place at Southwood, 
a country town with a population of about 4,000, where Benson had grown up. Benson had exchanged duties with another girl that night, without getting permission. He was using this information that he had asked Benson about it under hypnosis. Osborne said, I set the scene as well as I could. I asked Benson to describe what had happened. She said she got off her bicycle when she arrived at the post. The warden was in the doorway. He was saying to Benson, Tell my wife I'm all right. Benson says to him, I can't. I must see about your arms. She said they are badly cut. Benson sits next to him on the step after clearing away the broken glass. She gets a bicycle lamp and goes inside the post looking for bandages and possibly blankets. But she can't find any. Benson said that she's thinking that she can't find any bandages and that she's not supposed to be there. She was not supposed to be on duty because it's not her turn. She was under considerable emotional stress. She's repeating, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be on duty. Then she says, I can see things. Then I trip over someone's feet. There's blood. Horrible. And on the ground there's a woman. And I'm not supposed to be here. It's not my turn of duty. There's blood on my shoes. The woman. I can't find a hand to feel the pulse. I can't feel her heart. I don't know whether she's dead or not. I don't know what to do. Then I hear the warden calling. She thinks I must not let him come in. I mustn't let him back in. I don't know what to do. There's blood all over my hands. I don't know if she's dead or not. I think she's dead. She's very white when I shine my lamp on her. Her clothes are covered in blood. Then I hear someone calling. And they come and say, where is she? I say, she's in there. She's dead. And they took her off in a van. I must go. I'm not supposed to be here. I have to clean my hands. There's blood all over my hands. In describing this incident when awake after the session, Miss Benson said she'd been a telephone operator in a report centre at Southwood in 1943. She was 21 years of age at the time and she was on duty with another girl called Barbara. She gave her a, she gave a detailed description of the report centre and explained that when the sirens sounded an alert or the warden posts in the area, there were nine in total, they were all reported to the report centre by telephone. One post had not reported. Miss Benson could not get through by phone, so she left on her bicycle to see why they were not reporting in. Thorpe was the name of the girl that had been killed by the bomb. Osborne said that at this stage there seemed no reason for linking the two elements, tea as a stimulant for someone suffering shock, and the death of Miss Thorpe in Benson's mind at the moment of seeing the apparition. Possibly blankets and the thought of first aid seemed to be in Benson's mind when she was in the bomb post. This may have formed an association linkage with the 1948 story of the gas girl and the woman killed by the bomb in 1943. The next hypnotic session was on the 22nd of April 1949. Again the aim was to try to work out what Benson was thinking about when she saw the woman in brown. If you recall, she said brown blankets that were wrapped around the girl who gassed herself were in her mind in the first session. In this session, she talked of a table where there was something 
on the table under a travel rug. When asked for more detail, she said it's a table for cutting people up. A dissecting table. When Angela Benson was awoken from hypnosis, she told of a woman that she had known that assisted in post-mortems. She said this woman didn't like dissecting bodies when they were still warm. Between the beginning of November 1948 and the 11th of March 1949, it's about 16 weeks, Miss Benson saw the apparition at least 12 times. But during the next 11 weeks, she had no experiences of any kind. Then on the 27th of May 1949, she saw it again. She wrote the following account not more than five minutes afterwards. I saw Henrietta at approximately 2.45 this afternoon. It happened like this. I left my desk to go down to the general offices. I was going down the first four stairs when I heard my phone ring. I turned and walked back. In opposite the passage to Mrs Miller's room, I glanced towards her door, which stood open, and inside standing was Henrietta. I wasn't startled. I came on in my room without pausing and lifted my receiver. The telephonist said that she hadn't rung my phone. In fact, she hadn't rung any building, any um, telephone bell in that building at that time. I thought it odd, and I went back down to the general office, but when I got there, I'd forgotten why I had to go down there. The fourth hypnotic session was on the 31st of May, 1949. Benson was asked... What was on her mind when she was going down the stairs to the general office on the 27th of May, just before the last sighting of Henrietta? Benson recalled that she had been thinking about a Mrs Webb who was ill in hospital. Benson said that she must go and visit her. Benson's sister had visited her and said that she looked terrible. Benson thought that she had had cancer of the throat and that she would be very thin when she went to go and visit. Benson, when asked further questions, said that she thought that she visited her in hospital, which she did on the evening of the 27th of May, the day that she last saw the woman in brown. She thought that when she went there, there would be ill people in all the beds in the ward, and she would have to walk past them all. The ward would be long and bright, with lots of windows, but she was not looking forward to being in the ward with so many ill people that she did not know, and she supposed that there would be some patients who did not have any visitors. Then with difficulty, Benson said there would be those horrible blankets on the bed. Will they be red or a different colour? Benson did not like hospital red blankets. This is what she remembered thinking as she descended the stairs when she heard her phone ringing and thinking, shall I continue down the stairs or go back and answer the phone? Benson turned back to go to the room and this is where she sees the apparition of the woman in brown. She thought, there's Henrietta. She was quite still and looking at me. I walked on and answered the phone but there was no one there. Edward Osborne was still nowhere near finding the relevance of the blankets or the significance of the brownness of the apparition. Word association, word association tests in awakened state, in which reaction times were noted, gave no clue, and questioning under hypnosis had been equally unsuccessful.
in an effort to solve the problem, um, the rest of the fourth hypnotic session was devoted to seeking the association on the theme of blankets. For the first time, Benson mentioned blankets in connection with the Southwood bombing incident, saying that Miss Thorpe should have been covered with them to keep her warm if she hadn't been dead. In addition to this, and to all the incidents already mentioned, Miss Benson described other thoughts and experiences associated with blankets, all of which were of a morbid nature, but brown blankets had paid no particular significance. Edward Osborne decided to contact Miss Benson's elder sister Pat to try to gain some fresh insight. He discovered that the three sisters, especially Angela, were much fonder of their mother than their father. Their mother's sudden death in January 1939 from a cerebral hemorrhage was a completely unexpected. Angela was passionately attached to her mother and her death was a great shock to her and she appeared to be more deeply affected by it than her other sisters or brother. Sister Pat went abroad for three weeks after her mother's death in February 1939 and returned to England in November 1944. She told Osborne that since her return Angela had not mentioned her mother of her own accord, which seemed to her strange as she had been so fond of her. Pat also described the circumstances in which Angela arrived home after her mother's death. She was summoned from the office where she was working by telephone. The telephone message saying that her mother was ill and she was met by her father who told her that her mother had died. When she entered the house, she found her mother lying on the floor where she had fallen. Pat thought, although she could not be sure, that there was some covering that had been thrown over the body. Pat undertook not to say anything to Angela about the conversation which Osborne would use in his next session with Benson. Angela Benson. So the last hypnotic session was on the 29th of June 1949. Miss Benson was asked to describe her actions and emotions on the day of her mother's death from the time she received a message asking her to return home. To avoid revealing his object in advance, Osborne led up to the subject with great care after starting with a general question about what she did at Christmas 1938. And in due course, she described how her father met her and told her that her mother was dead. She said she could not really believe it was true. She said, never mind, she'll be all right, really. She recalled how bewildered she was when she found her mother really was dead. Then she described the scene inside the house and said that her mother was lying on the floor, that she was covered over with, I think, a sheet, a travelling rug, a dark brown or dark blue rug. It covered most of her mother's body, including her face. She said she could not see what clothes the mother was wearing, but said that she usually wore blue or grey. When asked to give details of her mother's clothing in general, she described several items that she wore, including a brown silk coat and a brown skirt with a white pattern. She also said that she believed her mother was wearing an apron when she died. This account provided an association for the travelling rug covering the body, which had been mentioned on two earlier occasions under hypnosis. Osborne told her that she had not yet described the experience involving a particular shade of brown, 
which is such a distinctive feature of Henrietta. Osborne told her that it would come back to her after he counted five. As he counted up to four, he then told her that she was approaching the moment when she would remember. After the five count, there was silence for a few seconds. Then Benson said, Jim Carner, and proceeded to describe how before the war she went to a Jim Carner with her younger sister. A girl fell from her pony and was killed after falling on her head. The girl was put onto a stretcher and carried close to where Miss Benson and her sister were standing. The body, including the face, was covered up with a big brown blanket. It was the same shade of brown as Henrietta's clothes, and she had never ever seen that exact shade since. On being awoken, Miss Benson remembered as she was told that she would remember during hypnosis. Everything that she said about her mother's death and the scene of the Jim Carner she would remember when the cigarette case was next clicked. She also gave additional details about both incidents. She was quite sure that the brownness of the blankets and that of Henrietta's clothes were identical. I later... No, Osborne said that he later obtained confirmation of the incident from a sister who was with her at the time. She told Osborne in a letter that it happened in August 1939 when Benson was 17. The letter continued that from where they were standing near the first aid tent, they could not see the accident, but they heard shouts and screams and cries and learnt that a young girl of 15 who was competing in a race, had been thrown when her horse had stopped dead at a fairly high jump. She lost control and was pitched over the horse, about 15 or 20 feet onto her head. Her face and head were split open and she died immediately. A stretcher was taken from the first aid post and she was placed on it and a blanket was thrown over her. The dead girl was brought right in front of us by the first aid tent. The girl's parents followed the stretcher. I think the colour of the blanket was brown. Checks were then made by Osborne to check the objectivity of the, of the statements, or the reality of the statements that were made under hypnosis. Did things really happen as described by Miss Benson? Well, Miss Benson's version of the gas girl story differed from the original account as Miss Benson described to Osborne. Benson introduced the use of blankets into the story. When questioned about this in a woken state, she thought that Miss Watson had mentioned blankets in the story. Osborne believed that the introduction of blankets was a fantasy of Benson's, making, as Miss Watson said, the girl was dressed in a uniform and did not have a blanket. All the other facts were checked and all proved true except on the hospital visit the blankets were not coloured red. It was not possible to track down the woman who assisted in the post-mortems. The mother's death and the death of the girl at the Jim Carner were described as described by Benson under hypnosis. The hypnosis seemed to have a beneficial effect on Benson, as her elder sister said that she was now talking freely about her mother's sudden death. Osborne contacted the local authorities at Southwood. They confirmed that a stick of bombs fell on a particular night in the in 1943, and that a woman named Thorpe had been killed, and a warden at the first aid post had been gravely injured. 
Detailed civil defence records had since been disposed of, but Osborne was able to obtain the name and address of the warden, who lived close to Southwood. Osborne visited him at the beginning of September, before hearing the account of the incident as given by Miss Benson. The warden described the events of the night in which the bombers fell, and his account was different to that of Benson's. The warden said he was wounded in the stomach, not in the arms. The building was not in darkness, the lights had not been damaged by the explosion, and there was very little blood since Miss Thorpe, although she was extensively lacerated, she was killed instantaneously, and so there was no be bleeding as her heart had stopped pumping blood. The warden was not married, so he did not ask Benson to inform his wife. The warden was sure that, between the moment when the bombs fell and the time when he was taken to hospital, a matter of about five minutes or so, he was taken by somebody who lived nearby, no one had come to the post. He was certain he had not lost consciousness. He did not recall Benson. He doubted whether it would have been possible for anyone to reach the post on bicycle from the report centre before he was taken away. So it seems likely that Benson didn't arrive on the bike. It seemed that it was her imagination. The warden said he was standing in the doorway when the bombers fell, and the incident, the only one of its kind which took place at Southwood during the war, was widely known and talked about in the neighbourhood. He confirmed that it was the practice of the warden's post to telephone the report sent when the siren sounded. He also said that uh, one of the names of the telephone operators was Barbara, but he did not know an Angela Benson. It appeared, therefore, from this independent evidence, Miss Benson, who was living in Southwood at that time when the bombs fell, and who had lived in the town before the war, heard details of the incident and superimposed them on the actual story, a fantasy involving her own participation in it. It had been impossible to establish when Miss Benson first mentioned the Southwood incident and her alleged part in it before her first visual hallucination. Miss Watson heard of it shortly after learning about Henrietta, but Miss Benson had told other people in the office about it before that. Both of Miss Benson's sisters said that she had never mentioned the Southwood incident to them. In Edward Osborne's, Osborne's summing up, he concluded that no evidence was found which suggested a veridical nature of the apparition. This means that the, the apparition didn't seem related to anything that actually had happened. Osborne thought that there was nothing paranormal in the case, which evolved as a result of Angela Benson's fears and imagination. It was hallucination. Osborne wanted some answers to Benson's hallucinations. Why was the apparition brown? Why was Miss Benson not able to describe the face? Why was the experience of confined to one building and only one particular part of that building? What part did the telephone play? Why did she see the apparition only on some of the occasions when she was alone with Miss Watson in a room and the telephone rang? Osborne thought there was a question over Miss Benson's mental state at the time of seeing the apparition. It seemed that the Jim Carner incident was an association for the brownness of the apparition. The ringing of the telephone in Miss Watson's room, which brought on the apparition, was associated with the ringing of the telephone at the report centre in 1943, when Miss Thorpe died.
the inability to see the apparition's face was associated with Miss Benson's mother and the girl killed at the Gymkhana and the gas girl, all whose faces were covered by a blanket or a sheet. Osborne said that the three distinctive features in causing the apparitions being firstly telephone, secondly sudden or tragic death, and thirdly covering of the body in blankets. These were the common themes, the associations. The ringing of the telephone in Miss Watson's room caused the memory of the phone call about her mother's death or that of the report centre informing of the bombing raid. This gave the mental image of sudden death which for Benson would give a memory of the girl at the Gymkhana or the girl killed by the bomb or the story of the gas girl. All of these were related to blankets either covering the body or thoughts of the need of blankets for first aid or the wearing of blankets such as the time when Miss Benson was wearing a blanket in a cold unheated office when Miss Watson told her about the girl that gassed herself. Osborne concluded that it was a particular combination of factors which were responsible for the hallucinations. The foundation of past experiences, actual imagined elements in the immediate surroundings associated with the experience of sudden death. Osborne thought that the apparition's behaviour, when she put her fingers in the ears and cringed against the wall, arose from Benson's belief that she had died in a flying bomb explosion. Benson may have thought that the woman heard the doodlebug's distinctive buzzing overhead before the engine cut out overhead, which indicated that there was about to be a huge explosion nearby. The figure was covering its ears to block out the sound of the explosion. Osborne ended his report by thanking those that took part in the uh, investigation, in particular Miss Watson and Miss Benson. There was a postscript in that Miss Benson was still working in the office at publication of the story in October 1949. She worked in the same room, but she no longer suffered any hallucination. Well, there we are. That uh, concludes today's podcast. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I'd like to thank Damselfly for supplying the background music. So, until next time... I'd like to say thank you and goodbye.